This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Financial privacy is essential to a robustly free society. In this country, financial privacy has been on the wane for at least the last four decades. Cato's Nick Anthony is author of a new Cato policy analysis on financial privacy in our digital age. We spoke last week. I think it's safe to say that financial privacy broadly is on the wane in the United States. And that is, uh, it's unfortunate. And part of that is technological. Part of that is a bunch of old laws that uh, have been on the books for a really long time that have been interpreted with fresh eyes, I suppose. Part of that is court decisions. So, you know, what are the, what are the big impediments uh, as you see them in the history of financial privacy that uh, have, have are causing the biggest problems in terms of people's ability to say, no, this is none of your business. No, you can't have access to my own, my financial transactions. How do they reassert that? It's really hard to say because there are so many problems. However, I think they really boil down. If we If we distill it all, it comes down to the fact that people just don't know what's taking place. People think they have privacy, but it's really an illusion of privacy because the laws we have in place say that you can't be told if a bank is reporting your information to the government. You can't be told that they're filing 20 million reports a year and who knows how many are on you. So you think that oh, I I locked it away, I have two-factor authentication, I change my password every month to something that is 32 characters long and can't be a real word, I must have privacy. And unfortunately, because of laws that were, many of which were set in the 1970s and not changed for how technology has evolved, we really don't have privacy. We just have this, this illusion of it. So one of the one of the things that uh, imperils or and has for a long time imperiled financial privacy is uh, the Bank Secrecy Act and this threshold of ten thousand dollars that uh, triggers uh, a required bank report on this activity, which by itself, I suppose, is considered suspicious just by virtue of the fact that you're engaging in a transaction over $10,000. Um, we've had a few bouts of inflation since the nineteen, since the mid-1970s, and so that $10,000 is a much less meaningful number than it was when that law was passed. What, what, is, the, what is that, with those reports that the Bank Secrecy Act creates? Um, what are they good for? Not much, uh, not anything. It seems like this has been an ongoing problem where we've had this slow expansion, this constant expansion, and people try to justify that we're stopping terrorists. We're stopping drug dealers. We're stopping, um, human trafficking, all things that need to be stopped. And yet this isn't doing it. We've been asking uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network or FinCEN, the agency in charge with supervising all of this, uh, to provide data just to show nothing, nothing personal, nothing detailed, just to show in the aggregate how many of these reports are actually stopping crimes, 
how many of these reports are actually identifying criminals, how many are actually doing something good when it costs financial institutions over $40 billion a year to comply with. And they can't say. They can't tell us any number. They've even been mandated by law to start reporting this uh, in a in a law that was just recently passed uh, a few years ago, and they still can't answer what's going on. It is you would hope that when you're you know you've got a haystack and you're looking for a needle, that you don't want the largest possible haystack you can have. You want a relatively small one so you can find the needle, and uh, if if the baseline requirement is 10 grand in transactions, it seems like that uh, at least the fraction of those reports that are actually generating leads that will result in arrests for true financial crimes with real victims, uh, it doesn't, you know, just from the outside looking in, it doesn't look terribly likely that those are very helpful. Exactly. And We've had some studies uh, into this from the outside looking in, so they're they're imperfect, but it really seems to show across the board that as these reports increase and get larger and larger in number, uh, because it's covering more ground, because it hasn't been adjusted for inflation, that they really aren't catching more crimes. We're seeing the the people that are caught are actually going down which just makes no sense if you're trying to justify this as we need a broader scope. And it really goes to show that we need a fundamental change in the way that financial privacy is treated in this country. One of the other problems, and this is that's nobody's fault, I guess, uh, it's just technological. We're generating so much more data. We are able to engage in uh, financial transactions that have a paper trail associated with them where there would not have been a paper trail before uh, with Cash App, Venmo, Zelle, and all of these other services. How, how does that, I guess, in your, how does that change the attitudes of uh, either the private sector or government when it comes to trying to monitor all of this? Even, even if they're, you know, their their forward their public facing uh, claims are we're trying to prevent crime. I think the best way to look at that is to kind of dive back to the 1970s when we were in the initial wake of the Bank Secrecy Act, and the Supreme Court was looking at this question: Does the Fourth Amendment protect? your financial activity that's conducted with a bank, what eventually led to the third-party doctrine when they said if you involve a third party, you don't have these constitutional protections. And I bring that up because some of the the conversations on the side of that, though, that the justices were having, were that they were concerned that while the current system uh, was not too intrusive, that it could change in the future. And we have seen that change take place. We have seen technology, as you were just pointing out, by its very nature, it's involved third parties. No, It's no longer with the rare chance that you use a credit card for a once in a blue moon expense. Now people are using credit cards to go buy lunch, to go to a vending machine, to do everything that 
is what was once rare is now the norm. And so all of our information is on the table. And we're seeing now, while it's not the change we really need, uh, it's a good sign that the Supreme Court is kind of saying, well, things have changed drastically. Uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that this approach that has been used is ill-suited to the digital age in which people reveal a great deal of information about themselves to third parties in the course of carrying out mundane tasks. Right. If you, you take it to the it's absolute extreme, the third-party doctrine implicates basically anything you do on the internet. Uh, and of course, financial transactions are a big part of that. But it, I think she's probably correct that it's uh, ill-suited to a time when people are not really aware or it's, it's difficult for people to even assert their right to keep certain things uh, secret or uh, keep them uh, in a box in their closet, <laughs> you know, somewhere far away from from potentially prying eyes. Uh, but but I think there's there's an attitude that you and I have talked about before on the in the government, which is, well, look at all this data. Let's get that data. And it, it, it just doesn't it doesn't necessarily at least maybe you can tell me better, but it doesn't seem to connect to any like legitimate purpose, much less protecting the liberties of Americans. Sadly, that is the the case where I've I've had conversations with people that work in the federal government that they've said we need this this huge uh, ever expanding surveillance regime so that we can we can pluck a thread and see where that leads us or we can go on what essentially amounts to these fishing expeditions and it's not just private conversations, though. This isn't really like a jaw-dropping statement for me to make because this is also the argument that people have been making for 40 years when the Bank Secrecy Act was first coming up, when the Right to Financial Privacy Act was first enacted, when um, even just last year when the the Department of Justice, the DOJ, was responding to uh, the executive order on cryptocurrencies. We see law enforcement regularly campaign on this idea that warrants are too hard to get and take too long. It's, it's too difficult to comply with the Constitution. We, we can't have that. And somehow this has been allowed to be their argument. <laughs> the argument being the Constitution is constraining our activities in a very inconvenient way. Isn't there something that can be done? And to that, I say that is the exact purpose that it's there. It's to constrain and it's to have guidelines to make sure our rights aren't trampled on. What are the paths forward toward reclaiming financial privacy for, well, everybody? I think one of the easiest paths forward is right in the, the Right to Financial Privacy Act, this was a law that was enacted in response to the Bank Secrecy Act and in response to the third-party doctrine. It essentially said, no, 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 people need to have financial privacy, a protected right, and we need to establish a way that the government gets a warrant or a subpoena to go after these records. 
And then you might be asking, well, Nick, why are we talking about how bad financial privacy is if that was enacted in the 70s? And the unfortunate part about this piece of legislation is that at the very end, there's a list of exceptions. And it's about 20 different exceptions that are all the most mundane and routine uses of financial surveillance. So things like the the IRS is exempted, uh, the Bank Secrecy Act or any federal statute is exempted, um, the, the intelligence agencies are exempted and the like. There's 20 different exemptions that all say if you fill, uh, if you fit into this slot, well, then people don't have a right to financial privacy anymore. And these are really all the most common cases of financial surveillance. So really, the act did nothing in practice. However, all that needs to be done is remove those exceptions. And this, to be clear, this does not mean law enforcement can't go after you. It merely means they need a warrant. They need to prove that there's a reason to get your information. And once that's done, it's it's fine. They can, they can still go forward just the same. It's just they're actually doing it within the confines of the Constitution, like they should have been for the past 50 years. When you look at how states and the federal government manage Americans' data to the extent that they have access to it, it's just a you know, a parade of horrors uh, from, you know, the wealthiest people, the wealthiest taxpayers in uh, the U.S. having their tax returns and audit data leaked uh, to states like California accidentally releasing all sorts of data uh, on people. Uh, it's they're, they're just not well suited to manage a huge or it seems that they're not suited to uh, managing a, a lot of highly sensitive data. Uh, well, that Americans would prefer to have pri- kept private. Just just this past week, uh, it's been, or at least uh, of the time of this recording, it was revealed that the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau had exposed 250,000 Americans, had exposed their sensitive data, data they really just shouldn't have had. And w- to make matters worse, the, the CFPB realized this months ago. They still have not notified everyone that their data has been exposed. And I dare say, when when this podcast goes up, they still wouldn't have notified everyone. They're still trying to figure out how it all happened. And so mistakes happen. That's that's one thing. Um, I would say that they shouldn't have had the data in the first place to prevent the mistake. But let's let's set that aside. You would think that they would have this huge response, that they would be trying to fix the problem. What did they do? They went to the employee that leaked the information, and they asked this employee to promise that the information was deleted. They asked the the employee to essentially pinky promise that 250,000 Americans had their data exposed, but it would be deleted. And best of all, as if that weren't bad enough, the employee said no. So right now, they're still trying to figure out how to respond to this. And to that, I say, really, Americans should have constitutional protections over their financial privacy. They should not be at the whims of the government of that they find you interesting. They should be able to pull your information, throw it on the pile. If it goes out into the world, oh, well, maybe we'll fix it. 
that should not be how this country operates. That should not be where we are in this day and age. There are so many better options, and there are so many rules that clearly work that should extend to financial privacy. And that's the change that we really need. Nick Anthony is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.